All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning, for giving us a time to fellowship uniquely with You and with each other in the unity of the faith. Father, we are so very grateful and thankful that You've given us this wonderfully peaceful place of worship, for we know there are many in this world that would be completely satisfied with much humbler provisions. We are truly blessed, Father, and we pray that we never become familiar with Your grace and Your love. We pray for those who are lost in this world, Father, that they be humbled to their knees before they find themselves bowing at their own judgment. Father, we pray also for the sick in this congregation that Your will be done not just physically in them, but where it counts most, spiritually. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is consistent with our series, part 97 of the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. Just a friendly reminder to kick off this morning's message. And this is from this pulpit, and it's been coming from this pulpit for a very long time now. I don't know what else to say other than just say those three words. Read your Bibles. I think that so many of the ailments that people are plagued with would just go away if you just let the Word of God wash over you, if you just read your Bibles, you know, like the bald guy's been saying for quite some time now, you don't have to have a a master's in theology or a Ph.D. in this or that. Heck, you you probably only need, what, the ability to read. Um, Hello? So, if a six-year-old can get it, so can you. If a six-year-old can pick up their Bible and read it, even on their own, and I do hear the stories about not just Chris's family reading together and little kids encouraging each other to read their Bibles, if they can do it, why wouldn't you be able to do it? So read your Bibles. And while you're, while you're at it, don't just read it, you know, okay, okay, okay. Uh, in the beginning, uh, uh, uh. all right, I'm done. I met my quota for today. Don't do that. Read for context. Don't just look for verses that, you know, so-called would encourage you that are posted on worldly posters with, you know, eagles and mountains and stuff like that. All things are possible with God. It is true. But what's the context of that? What if you have no faith? What if you're a double-minded dipsukos, a double-souled person who has no real faith, who just wants to be you know, emotionally jacked up for a time because you've had a bad day? Well, that's not reading for context at all, is it? That's not observing people. That's being selfish. That's just observing you. So read for context, observe the people, accept clearly stated theology as gold refined by fire. Even if you don't understand it, if it says it in the Bible and it's that clear, accept it. 
Revelations 3.18, and keep away from the hyper-doctrinalization. Pray for faith, for God gives grace to the humble. James 4.6. This past week, beginning with our Father's Day special last Sunday, it's been a wonderful reminder to us all of the most fundamental aspects of our divine hope. That is, we have a Father in Heaven that loves us. Do you not get familiar? I get familiar with that all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know God loves me. Yeah, it's like with your parents. Right? Yeah, I know you love me. But I want this thing right now, so I'm not digging you right now. No, do not let that go by. We have a Father in Heaven that loves us. And not only are His ways and His thoughts beyond our abilities to fully grasp, He Himself is infinite, holy, eternal, making Him, quote-unquote, as a person impossible to fully grasp. Yet, in the same way that we can't understand the effects of the solar sun, let's say, on the earth, we bask in what is able, or it is able to provide us. First and foremost, what? Look outside. What's coming through the windows? Light. We don't understand everything that's going on. Can everybody describe the grass that's germinating on my loom, on my lawn? No. But somehow, sun is necessary. Can anybody describe how, what is it, vitamin E gets into your body from the sun through your skin? I don't know. Is it vitamin D? Which one is it? Oh, sorry. (laughs) Vitamin D. I was a letter off. Grace, people. You know? Do you understand that? The conversion of... No. Some of you might, but very few do. And beyond that, who knows about all the chemistry? The point is, it's a decent analogy to the light. So that's been the perspective. God is light. 1 John 1.5 God is unity. That means He's one. One complete essence. James 2.19 We often learn about God by beginning with His Father's attributes, and then pointing back to Him. However, in the end, what He wants us to realize is that these attributes are the result, or the results of the eternal God being who He is, intrinsically light. We do not, quote, construct God out of a list of attributes. That would be like existentialism, which is, oh, well, this is how I experience God, so He's different. My God is different than your God. That's what the idiots out there would say from religion to religion. Oh, it's all the same God. We just have different experiences with Him. No, that's garbage. There's only one true God in the universe. There's a God of this world, Satan, who wants you to think there's a bunch of different ways to get to the Father, but the only way to get to the Father is through Christ. So says the Bible. And if you have to throw that out, then you have to throw the whole Bible out, including all the other promises that are in the Bible. So you choose. Anyways, we do not construct God out of a list of attributes any more than the human eye can construct white light out of a rainbow. In other words, up here on the board, while we may appreciate the colors on the spectrum, there's nothing as complete and perfect as pure white light. The same goes with God. Go to 1 John 1.5. 1 John 1.5. That's the perspective that he wants us to think about this morning. At least to get us started. 1 John 
There's nothing as complete and perfect as pure white light. 1 John 1.5 1 John 1.5 reads, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Just think about that. In Him there is no darkness at all. I was reflecting on this. Uh, There's just so much to be said. Before our focused lessons on the fathers in our lives, which we just really just finished up this past week, we had some time focusing on forgiveness, which also carries with it the concept of mercy. And so the Spirit's been pulling multiple things together. We had a practical set of lessons on fathers, uh, forgiveness before that. Mercy was woven into all of it. God is merciful, remember. And as Scripture states, He gives mercy to the merciful. Even so, He is never merciful outside of being perfectly just and righteous. For He is like white light, always full of every facet of Himself. And so, while we might do this good work, you know, carving up Scripture bitwise so that we can consume it uh, as, you know, bites in a meal. This is the bread of life. We mustn't forget who and what God truly is. Perfect light. Mercy is one facet, for example, of God's light. If we apply the, quote, prism of systematic theology, we might see mercy as a particular wavelength or color of light, which is fine for study purposes, but we ought never divorce it from the unity of the light himself or his other infinite attributes. And all I'm saying there is that we ought not to forget that Mercy works perfectly with justice. Justice works perfectly with love. Love works perfectly with grace. And the list goes on and on. These things are all Him. Unity. What the Spirit's been teaching us in general is that we must be careful not to put God in a box. For as I've taught you in the past, to whatever degree you put artificial boundaries around God, To that same degree, you are boxing out that which is infinite. If God's infinite, there is no boxing Him in. But we like to try to control God. And to whatever degree we make a little little corral for ourselves, well, this is my experience with God. This is what I want God to be. I don't want Him to be just and disciplinary. I just want Him to be loving. I just need Him to be loving. Well, that's great. He is loving. He's perfect love. He is love, so says Scripture. But He's also righteous. He's also justice. He's also merciful. He's also compassionate. He's also disciplinary. He's also all these other things in perfection. But to whatever degree we box Him in like that, we have to think about, well, then what's left over? Whatever's infinitely outside the box we just created, which leaves an awful lot in darkness. If God is light, then in a sense, we are cutting off the light from certain aspects of our lives. Maybe it's that old sinful thing that you don't want to give up yet. The one that when the light shines upon it, you cringe, knowing how ugly it is. Or maybe it's that so-called area of strength where the spotlights of the world, the artificial ones that esteem your so-called talents, are shining on you. 
Whatever the case may be in your life, when you choose to box God out, you are left with the absence of light, which is called what? Darkness. If you're going to hack God out of your life, you're going to put a little corral around Him, take the infinite and try to make it finite. Whatever's left over is darkness. And who do you have to blame for that? You. You have chosen to make room for darkness in your life up here on the board. If we put God in a box, we have made those areas in our lives where God has been boxed out, areas of darkness. It is then that we begin wrestling with darkness out of perceived human necessity. Contrarily, if we have the fullness of light, we do not wrestle with darkness. And how great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? So in a practical attempt to drive this point home, we considered a verse favored by many a Christian. Go to 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Peter 5, 7. To help drive this point home in the practical sense, we used 1 Peter 5, 7. I could have picked, I don't even, you know, a multitude of verses. But maybe this is the one that he wanted me to focus on given the, the heightened um, sense of it through blogs, remember um, the blog I wrote recently on anxiety? Um, these kinds of things have been coming up consistently from the pulpit. So it's no wonder that he's using this particular verse. First Peter 5, 7 says, Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And academically we say, Ah, so good to be reminded of, isn't it? Oh, I love these verses. I think I'm just going to, I'm going to get a tattoo. Casting all my anxieties. And every time I get insecure, I'm just going to look at it. Casting all my anxieties. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, unless it's accompanied by what? Faith. Faith. It sounds like an emotional aha moment, but that's all it is for many people. Here's what the Spirit had to say on that subject up here on the board. Knowing is not living. For example, James 2.19. Knowing, say 1 Peter 5.7, that's not living. That's not the same as living. There's a huge chasm between the two. I mean, technically, if I got a really smart parrot, I think I could get them to regurgitate, right? Probably. And are we going to say that that parrot's able to cast all its anxieties? Although, in all fairness, it probably does more than many so-called Christians do. Just saying. But who knows? I don't want to get anybody up in arms. Oh, now you're equating us to parrots. Happy Sunday! James 2.19 For example, knowing is not living. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So? Knowing is not living. Even the demons know facts about God, yet one-third of them are condemned to the lake of fire for all of eternity. Why? Because while knowing, they failed to believe and therefore live in what they know to be true. They'd rather live a lie, handed to them by the father of lies, Satan. Many Christians do the same thing, quote, knowing what Scripture has to say, yet never living in what they know to be true. Why? Arrogance, of course. Of course it's arrogance. God is opposed to the arrogant, so says Scripture, and the arrogant do not live by faith. Why? They can't. 
because God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, if we're to net it all out, arrogant people lack faith in God. So the funniest thing is that arrogant people, even though they might say, I have all this scripture memorized, blah, 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 they don't actually live in it. They don't have God's peace. Why? Because they're arrogant. And God gives grace to the humble. So as a result, when the arrogant read the likes of 1 Peter 5-7, while enamored with the potentiality of it, they are never receivers of the eternal gold that produces in the soul of a humble, faithful believer. Why? Scripture says, James 1, 7, 8, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, the double-minded, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So without faith, you're unstable. Without faith, those promises like 1 Peter 5, 7, aren't yours. You don't lambano. You don't possess them yet. In many ways, so much of this is mitigated by simply following what yours truly has suggested that you read your Bibles. Honestly, just read your Bibles. There's only so much ground I can cover in now, you know, with the pulpit in three hours and some Bible studies. For if you do, you might be delighted to find that clarity and peace come with following the commands of God, one of which is listen to your pastor, obey what he says, read your Bibles and the blogs and these books that I've written for your edification. Those are all commands. Those are all delegated commands. Those are things that I'm telling you as the shepherd here. Do these things. And if you're disobeying me, then you're disobeying God. That's a fact. The Bible says in no uncertain terms to submit to and obey your pastor. And if you don't, it will be unprofitable for you. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Unprofitable for you. A person that truly knows my heart knows that I don't want you to submit, obey, or to obey me for my sake. Frankly, your responsibility and therefore a burden to me. I don't mean to say it the wrong way. I was what? Jeez, man. <laughs> you don't think you're a burden? You don't think the responsibility of a church is a cross to bear? So how could this possibly be for my sake? A person who knows my heart knows that I accept this burden, this cross, because I know that if I bear it well and you choose to submit, you will benefit. Some of you might be mumbling in your souls, but I'm afraid to submit to authority because authority has let me down in the past in a variety of ways. Join the crowd. Yet, Scripture says, as we finish our thoughts on 1 Peter 5.7, Go to 1 Peter 5, 6. 1 Peter 5, 6. Therefore, what? Humble yourselves. Humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. And so you see the precursor to the promise, humility. 
And if God's commands say, submit to this man or submit to whatever father is in your life, these kinds of things, as long as it's not out of order, and you can't follow an earthly father that says, hey, go you know, jump off this bridge to your own death. That's not what he's talking about. Seeing it all as truth in the light, throwing all your anxieties on him works because by faith we say, well, we've given it over to him and he'll take it from here. However, if we wrestle with it in our own flesh or with our own flesh because we are arrogant, we don't have the promises of deliverance. You may seem like you're delivering yourself out of a jam, let's say. But that's not where it counts. There may be a certain pain that's alleviated by doing a certain something in the flesh. But it's like that other blog I wrote not too long ago about the baseball fields. You're literally completely and wholly on the wrong baseball diamond where there's a counterfeit good and evil. And you're playing this ridiculous game in, the, in Satan's world. You're like, oh, but I don't, I'm not in any pain anymore. No kidding. That's because now you're abiding in Satan's way of doing things. So all the little antagonisms that you used to suffer, you're not suffering anymore. He's very smart, folks. If we wrestle with it, with our own flesh, because we're arrogant, we don't have the promises of deliverance. Rather, we have darkness to strive against, something we cannot overcome on our own. The net net of Thursday's lesson was this, that God demands our humility. Arrogance cannot deliver you, only God can, leaving you with a single option, humility. A saved, delivered person is an obedient one. An obedient person enjoys God's peace and time. A disobedient one doesn't. You may have peace with the world, but you won't have God's peace. But the kicker is, if you start following the Word of God and obeying God, you're not going to have peace anymore with the world. You don't get to have both like most of you try to do. Oh, I've got to go to church. I'm going to go make my peace with God. Why do you think most people like religions with little booths? Let me go make my peace with God. That's not how it works, my friends. You don't get both. You don't have both. You can't have peace with the world simultaneously with peace with God. So says Scripture. You know, love the one and hate the other or the other way around. So says the Word of God. So cut it out. Stop playing that stupid game. So arrogant, right? I am too. So this isn't about, you know, any of us looking at each other and going, yeah, Anthony's so bad. Have you seen him? He says he has stomach problems. I think I saw him. You said he had stomach problems. I see him over at the bar the other night. Yeah, well, what were you doing there? Oh, I was out shopping for, you know, you know, I was burying the dead. Nah. Obedient person enjoys God's peace. A disobedient one doesn't. Now, as we prepare to head on back to our mainstream studies, we've been sort of off on these little colorful tangents, all padding experiential sanctification. Don't miss it. So as we're heading back, I want to take some time to encourage you all with some Scripture. And we ended last time with the following. Sanctification 
It's just a perspective. It's just a, a way to think about if you're saved, this is you. You're victorious already. It's done. You are on the winning team. So when we think about God leaving us here after our salvation, well, what's the deal? As Brian would say, what's the dealio? You still say that? Where is he? Oh, there he is. You don't say that since you have a goatee now. No. Things changed. Living the spiritual life in Christ in the new creature is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor's stand than trying to climb up. That's what it's like. I got a, a headache right now for some reason. I just, I'm convinced that it's just the tax. The pressures of doing things the right way. They physically wear you down. So the fight is not succumbing to the temptation to think that I have to climb back up somehow. The reality is what Scripture says. It says resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. That's your great challenge in time. You've already won if you're a believer. Every believer has been placed on the victor's stand positionally. In the most practical sense, the only place to go then is down. Off of it, I guess, experientially. Yet Satan lies and tells us that we must climb up, which is why he loves the idea of religion, because it gives us the, quote, means to elevate ourselves on the merits of doing stuff. Sounds like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Oh, and just just in case you didn't know, on religion, did I tell you that I wrote a book recently called Religion by Any Other Name? I'm just throwing it out there, just in case I forgot. It's entirely possible. I'm getting old. Religion by Any Other Name, yeah, it's on the website and everything. I even took the time to convert it into PDF, Mobi format, and EPUB. People are like, what the heck is Mobi? Mobi's, Mobi's for Kindle, and EPUB is for any other reader, like a Nook or any other electronic reader. Yeah, I did all that. And I converted it to HTML as well. Why? Because I want you to do as you're told, read these things, so that it's profitable for you. Now you do your part. Nope, I'd rather work my way up. I'd rather do stuff. I'd rather not obey the Word of God. I'd rather do stuff that my fellow house members maybe even, my friends, are agreeable to. Because I need to have at least a little peace in the world. You don't understand, bald guy. You live in a cave. So you don't know what it's like. I'm sick of, you know, you don't know what it's like. Oh, I don't know what it's like. I spent the first, what, 40 years of my life in the world doing any kind of job and been there, done that. So don't tell me I don't know what it's like. I can't sympathize. That's just an arrogant person trying to brush off what's coming from the pulpit. So anyways, religion by any other name. Maybe, just maybe, God had me write it most recently because of our current lessons. False religion says we ought to obey so that we can climb up to the victor's stand. However, true religion is wrought with obedience because God's love has become the sanctification of its possessor. Think about 
even in a very small way, when you truly love someone, not that, you know, adolescent, truly love someone, what do you do? You do things that are pleasing to them. Amen? I mean, who should we love more than God? And if he says, this is what I want from you, you may not understand why I'm asking this thing of you. You may not understand why I'm teaching you the things I'm teaching you from the pulpit. You may not understand why that guy keeps saying it. Okay, I'm going to read my Bible as soon as I get peace with the world. I don't have time to read covert arrogance. You see how long that thing is? Yeah, I wrote it and rewrote it and then rewrote it again and edited it. And then I had to listen to Monica complain at me how bad a writer I am. She doesn't say that. But how many editors we have back and forth? It's ridiculous. And you got another person that's reading it over and over and over again. You think we're doing this? We don't, I don't charge a dime. It's not like I'm making money. Come on, people. True religion is wrought with obedience because God's love has become the sanctification of its possessor. We believers then are motivated to obey God's commands, not because we think we need to climb up. Not at all. We believers are motivated as a result of being changed by God Himself as a result of being sanctified. That's when you know. When it starts becoming a chore and it starts becoming something to look forward to. When you don't have to say to yourself, Ugh, i got to get up a half an hour early so I can read my Bible. No, you spring out of bed and say, this is the best part of my day. I'm going to get a coffee, I'm going to get my Bible, and I'm going to read. You're looking forward to it. Because you know the rest of your day is out there in the sewer pipe. And they're trying to take you off the victor stand. You know, king of the hill? Mm, mm, mm. But yet all you get when you read the Word of God is washed, clean of all the sewage you pick up the day before. In the righteous sense, regarding the victor stand, we are actually more concerned about being toppled off rather than climbing up. Hence the point on the board. And this is sanctification proper. Living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off of the victor stand than trying to climb up. My family and I were up late the other night watching a sermon from Pastor Francis Chan. Some of you know who he is. He's out in California. He used to be a, he used to have a very sizable church. Um, God said, leave. I need you to focus on the Great Commission. And he did. Sold pretty much everything he had. He has five kids and a wife, and they moved into a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. So we were listening to this Pastor Francis Chan to a sermon titled The Thrill of Obedience. And if you're interested, it's on YouTube. The Thrill of Obedience. It's funny because so much of what he said is coming from this pulpit. Except he is a way better communicator than I am in terms of, uh, well, you watch it and you, you understand what I'm saying. Everybody has their ministry. And he was talking about how life in this world can be equated to a toilet bowl. See? That's why I like him. Right? He's 
dead on. And he's doing this, and he's like, you know like when you flush it? You know? And there's that outer rim part. He called it the lazy river. All right? You're out in the outer rim, and the water's nice and clean still. All right? And you just kind of jump in the lazy man's river. You know the lazy man's river, like uh, water country? That thing. He goes, we jump in, and we're like, yeah, this is kind of nice. Woo! Right? And we take a few laps on the outer, but it's a toilet bowl. <laughs> Where are you going? Where's, the, where's it headed? And that's what he was saying. He's like, you know, it's comfortable for a while. It's like lulls us in. Hey, look at that. It's a lazy man river. I can just sort of like, you know, go around the rim. He was talking about how life in this world can be equated to a toilet bowl for those who refuse to obey our Father in heaven. He said, you know, picture this toilet bowl flushing, knowing where its contents head in the sewer pipe. And we might call that destination the end of sin. In other words, sin heads in a certain vector, a certain direction. And the end of it is the sewer pipe, is precisely what the world is all about. Right? You head on back to the sewer pipe. And just read Romans 1.18 on to the close of the chapter, and you'll know exactly what the end of sin is. So it's like a sewer, nasty, defiled, impure, and filled with ungodliness. Yet as he said, quote, nobody ever starts out thinking they are going to end up in the sewer pipe, do they? Nobody ever starts out thinking you're going to end up in the sewer pipe. Now they say, I'll just circle around here at the top of the toilet bowl, like floating in the lazy river at water country. However, with each revolution, they begin corkscrewing downwards, and it becomes more and more difficult to eject oneself from the end of sin, so to speak. And it's true. Some go way down, even though they are never lost. And even in their destitution, they are fully aware of how it all transpired. It all started in the lazy river, when they thought they were in complete control. And then he used a drug addiction as an example where he made friends with a guy who had been an addict for 40 years. And it all started in the back room of a restaurant at the age of 19 years old where his boss offered him a bit of cocaine. I'll just, you know, jump in the lazy rhythm for a second. 40 years later, still hooked. The point that Pastor Chan was getting at is simple. Don't get in the lazy man river. Don't get in. Don't try to play that game. Peace with God and peace with the world. They're mutually exclusive. Satan's ways are not always blunt, or as I like to say, frontal assaults. I'd argue they are really these things. I'd argue that Satan's much wiser than most of you think, and his strategy is to wear us out. Get us to, you know, dip our toes in the lazy man's river. But so-and-so's doing it, and they seem to be getting along just fine. And so-and-so is doing it. So look at that. There's Jimmy. Oh, and there's Sally. Look at them all. And they're all like this. Oh, I'm, I'm drinking Mai Tais. Come on in. It's all good, right? Ten years later, they're down there like, whoa! What happened? It smells funny. It's funny because when we do dip our toes, when we take a couple of spins around the toilet bowl, our nagging flesh 
subsides with its incessant temptations, doesn't it? That's one of the ways you know you're doing it wrong. If the world all of a sudden leaves you alone, if the world all of a sudden leaves you alone after you make some decision, you know, from the flesh, against God's will for your life, what do you think about that? Why would the world all of a sudden leave you alone? Because it wants you to think it's nice in the lazy man's river. It wants to keep you away from peace with God, God's commandments for your life. And so, of course, it says, okay, enough. You don't think Satan has demons taunting you? Fiery darts? Saying, just quit this thing. Look at all your friends. Look at them on, look at them on fake book, right? Fake book. Look at them all over there. Look at them. They all have these lovely wives and the trophy husbands and the trophy spouses and the trophy kids and the trophy cat and the trophy dog and the trophy vacations. And they have all this stuff and they're drinking Mai Tais in the Lazy Man River. What's up? Just quit. And he's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And you're like, this isn't, like life becomes sort of antagonistic. And then all of a sudden you jump in the Lazy Man River, it goes whoosh. Next thing you know, you're posting trophy pictures. And everybody's like, oh, yay for you. You're just doing so good. Ever since high school, ever since I saw you in the reunion and I tried to push you down with how great I am, but yet I wasn't able to do it. I'm so happy for you. Let's get this one. Devouring each other. The whole nine yards. We got them. So, our nagging flesh subsides with its incessant temptations. And for a time, things seem to calm down in our souls, don't they? You bet. That's the way Satan has designed it. I mean, okay, you go to water country, right? You get in the raft, right? And it's the worst rapids in the history of mankind. You think that's what the Lazy Man's River is about? No, he's going to make it nice and placid. Everybody's like, oh, this is the best, right? Right? You go bumping around, and everybody's, oh, it's okay that your kids splash me. It's all right. Right? No. If he had it as rapids, and you were in an old tire tube with a stem that was sticking in your side, <laughs> remember those days? And you get like the rash under your arm. It's like, where did that come from? It's like missing skin, and it's like, you know, that was awesome. If it was like that, you might not stay in the toilet bowl very long. You get the point. That's how Satan's designed it. Don't miss that. Again, living the spiritual life in Christ and the new creature is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor stand than trying to climb up. So I want to read some encouraging scripture now because um, it's the only thing that can really wash us over. Amen? It really is. I mean, I can crack jokes and you guys can laugh and this kind of a thing, but at the end of the day, it's really about scripture. That's all I'm really trying to do. I'm the bus driver saying, listen, there's some good scripture to think about. There's some more over there. There's some more... Get off the bus, smell the roses, take it in, learn to enjoy the ride, learn to enjoy His Word on your own. Go to Joshua 1.9. Joshua 1.9. That's all the Spirit's really saying. Even these hard lessons, they're all just to wake you up. That's really my job. Sometimes I kick you in the shin and I say, come on, wake up. What are you doing? You're in the lazy man river. No, you've been in there too long. Now you're in the middle of the toilet bowl. Your head's spinning. You're wondering what's going on. But life seemed to calm down. Yeah, it did. 
You think Satan's going to not celebrate you getting into the toilet bowl? You think he's not going to remove things that nagging from your flesh? Of course he's going to do those things. That's how he entices you in. Joshua 1.9, I'm just going to read, okay? I'm really not going to try to get in the way here. Have, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. All right. How about Psalm 28.7? Psalm 28.7. I'm going to try to go in order so you can just keep going right, unless I screwed up, and then you could say, you don't even know his Bible. What a loser. Right? <laughs> Whatever. God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord, the Lord is my strength. 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. You see that? Just by trusting in Him, you're helped. Therefore my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank Him. How about Psalm 34, 4? Psalm 34, verse 4. You're a victor. Just remember that. That's what the Spirit's trying to impress upon you right now. You don't need anything more than Christ. You don't need the lazy man river. That's a lie. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Reminds me of both of these. Both of these Father's Day cards have... Thank you for taking care of me when I was scared. Right? That's just a little kid's way of saying, I have certain fears. It's amazing. Psalm 37, 4. Did I not take you there? Did I not? Oh, I didn't? Imagine that. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Go to Psalm 121.1. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I hope I don't don't have to say this, but just in case. You know, if you say, I delight in you, Lord, give me a million bucks, that's not going to happen. It may if that is His will, it may absolutely happen. I mean, if you have the faith of the size of a mustard seed and you can move a mountain, then you can certainly get a million bucks if your heart is right. But what did James say? Most do not receive because you ask with wrong what? Motivations. I want a million bucks so I can have peace with the world because I need to go on Facebook and show all my trophy stuff that I just bought with my million bucks. Huh? What do you think of these pumps, huh? What do you think of these hippies? What do you think of whatever you'd buy, Anthony? Right? I'm running away from him after. Psalm 121.1 I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. 
The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Go to Proverbs 30, verse 5. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Again, we're just surveying Scripture for the sake of encouragement. He's just showing you how much you already have. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. How about go to New Testament, Mark eleven twenty four. Mark eleven twenty four. Mark eleven twenty four. Again, we just saw in Proverbs that he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. This this is one of my favorite perspectives in all of the Bible. It is the antithesis of double mindedness. Just again, look, look at the second part. It says Believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Just dwell on that. Think of the immensity, the eternal nature of God and His promises. Believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Huh. Romans 15.13, go there. Romans 15.13. Romans 15, 13. It's true. If you have ultimate faith, I mean, anything that you ask is already done because God already ordained it in eternity past. Huh. But you've got to have faith. So there you go. Romans 15, 13. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a helper that's right there with us, reminding us that we ought to have hope, that we are victors in Christ already. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. 5 9, 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Why? Because the world is horrible. The world's horrible. We need each other's encouragement. That's the whole Hebrews 10.25 thing. Don't forsake gathering together. Why? Because we do need each other. This has come up from the pulpit in the last few months. There's a reason why he made us social in the way that he made us social. Think about that. There's a reason why. It's because it's tough out there, especially in this part of the country. 
in the world where everybody, frankly, can't even stand Jesus Christ. It's like a swear word now. So we need each other. We need to encourage one another. We need to remind each other that we're already victors, that we're on the winning team. We don't have to go play ball in the wrong ball field and pretend that there's wins and losses going on when it's all a loss, like Paul would say. I consider it all rubbish. I went, Paul basically said, I won in the world system. In my 40 years, I won. That's what I was alluding to earlier. Paul said, I won but I consider it all rubbish just to play the right game. Just to get on the right field. Some of you say, no way. I like the game. I'm just a bus driver. Let us remind ourselves that we are co-victors with Jesus, with each other for that matter. Go to 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7 You know, and as a bus driver, I'm not afraid to say these things to you. Why would I be? The Scripture. You shouldn't be afraid of encouraging your neighbor or your friends or your loved ones. Especially if they're not right with Christ. That's the doozy. Especially if they're not saved. There should be no holding back. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of what? Power and love and discipline. We're not little wimps. We're supposed to stand up. We're supposed to defend the faith, not join in the fray, not try to find peace with the world at the expense of peace with God. Who's going to be the sentry? Who's going to be the guardian? Seriously. Who's going to do it if you don't? The rest of your friends and family, for most of you, are completely torn up by the world. Completely lost. Some of them say, I'm a Christian, but they're actually not. That's most of us in here, I would argue. Otherwise, everybody's families at least would be in here, correct? Think about that. If that wasn't the case, then why is not everybody else's family in here? or at least going to some other accurate teaching. Anyways, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Again, living the spiritual life in Christ and the new creature is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor stand than trying to climb up. So let us be encouraged, my friends, for we are truly victors in Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. 57, i got to pick a spot now. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 15, 57. Sorry. 15, 77. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. The last one was a joke. Victory in Jesus. See, it doesn't matter. Even if you have a dumb shepherd, it doesn't even matter, does it? No. So what? I go over extra potholes when I'm driving, you know? 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be to God, who gives us the what? The victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're already victors. You're already up on the podium. Do you understand? This is about being dragged off. And that's what you have to think about. Because positionally... 
You've already been made perfect. That's the new creature. Experientially, different story. Go to 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4. Our experience is very different because of all the things that the Spirit's been talking about this morning, especially this point on the board. 1 John 5, 4. God, life is good. It, it is. Some of you are like, no, it's not. I'm in the toilet bowl. It's not so good. Get it? No? <laughs> First John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Ah. God gives grace to who? The humble. Faith is a grace gift. So if you want this thing, if you want to realize what the Spirit's been saying, what have I been saying for years now? The key to the spiritual life is what? I'm not some broken record, my friends. You just have to realize precisely what the Word of God has to say on all of this stuff. It's not difficult, really. not difficult. Jesus Christ is the one who said, have the faith of a child. <laughs> Get the lights, guys.
just close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for always giving us blessings when we don't even deserve them, for always being faithful even when we are faithless, and for revealing to us the nature and extent of your love for us. We love because you first loved us. What a tremendous statement in your word, Father. One that continues to richly bless us with each passing day. What a wonderfully simple concept to be loved in the pure way that you love us. So we pray, Father, that our hearts be ever humbled by you. Starting with the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Son whom you sent to die for our sins. We pray also, Father, that we might do what is pleasing in your sight always, as your apostle stated. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to you. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.